gives me great comfort to know that Jesus prayed for me. It should give you comfort as you read John 17, as he was praying for those who would yet to believe, that would one day believe that, that we're counted amongst those numbers because we, we've believed the gospel. And having believed the gospel, we who are not a people became a people. We who are dead have been made alive. We who are orphans have been brought into a family. And our identity has been changed. It's described in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this series, as we're understanding what it means to be the, the people of the kingdom of God, we're looking at what we have. And we're studying the book of Acts, which provides not only the origin story of the church, of who we are, our, our, our wonderful uh, heritage of faith, but also what we have in particular as God's people. And today we're going to learn we have God's conviction. As the, as the people of the kingdom of God, we have God's conviction. Now, conviction for some is, is often seen as a negative. And I just want to put this on the screen to, to speak it plainly. Conviction is often seen as a negative, but conviction is an act of grace. Conviction is an act of grace, of God calling us out of darkness, calling us out of sin, calling us out of a curse into a blessedness, into the light, into life. And it's difficult sometimes. It's, it's hard to hear. It's interesting to me how many people refuse to gather with a church, you know, and they make excuses. I can experience God anywhere. I, my, my God goes to me where I am. I, I get all of that. But there's something powerful that happens in the gathering of God's people. And what many don't want is the conviction. You know, it's like going to the doctor. No one likes to go to the doctor. Doctors, I'm sorry. We love you, but we don't like to go to you, okay? We, we don't like to go because oftentimes we don't want to hear the truth. We need, to, we need to lose some weight. We need to lay off the M&Ms, right? We need to deal with, with some, some changes in our lifestyles in order to be healthy. And what, what Scripture does is it often calls us to see a reality and the Holy Spirit brings conviction that tells us to change. But it's not, it's not just what we ought to stop. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit, there's a conviction of what we must do. It's not only what we must avoid, it's, it's what we must engage in because God has called us to, to be hopeful and helpful and to help hurting people. There are people who are in darkness, they're dead, they're lost, they need help and we have that help. And the Holy Spirit is convicting us to be those helpers, to, to be that light in the, in the darkness. I, I, I'm often grateful for the way the Holy Spirit works uh, to have folks come up often uh, every Sunday and, and say, I, I'm being convicted, I need to serve in this area or, or I'm not serving in this area anymore. Where, where do you think God would have me? And there's a conviction there to serve, not only in the church, but the world. There's a conviction. I need to have a conversation with this family member. I need to, I need to have this conversation with a, a friend at school or at work. And, and could you pray for me? And could you advise me? And, and there is a conviction that it's not something that, that any of us have said. It's not anything necessarily that I have said. It's a work of the Holy Spirit where the word of God has brought clarity and that clarity demands change. And that's what conviction does. It, it demands change. And so our, our text today, it helps us understand how God convicts and what he convicts us to do always. If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, let's go to Acts chapter five. Again, we're gonna be in the book of Acts until Thanksgiving. Uh, and today we're gonna be in Acts chapter 
5, and uh, we're going to be in verses 27 through 42, but Brinkley's going to read 27 through 32. So Brinkley, come on up. Let's all stand together in honor of God's word. Again, we're in Acts chapter 5, and the section we're going that Brinkley's going to read is uh, 27 through 32. So Brinkley, would you read that for us? And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge do you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and his apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. If you would, go ahead and be seated and pray now for the preaching of God's word. Again, in case you haven't been here, we're in the book of Acts. Acts begins in chapter 1 with Jesus Christ having died and been raised. He didn't ascend immediately. He spent 40 days proving to the apostles and to those people that, that he had indeed not only paid the penalty for sin, but he had also defeated death through the resurrection. And so because he was alive, he was able to order them and he ordered them to stay until the Holy Spirit came. And chapter two, you see, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come and there was preaching and, and 3,000 were added to the church that day. And, and the church begins to function as the church in chapters three and chapter four and chapter five. And they're, they're doing what the church does. They're loving each other. They're caring for one another, but they're also caring for the welfare of the city where God had placed them. And so they're, they're seeing God do miracles. And that's what God does. When God brings about a transformation, a, a promised transformation, it, it often is accompanied by miracles. And so the apostles were performing miracles as proof that they were servants of the Most High God. And so people were being healed and lives were being transformed. And the religious leaders didn't like it. They didn't like it at all because it was undermining their authority. It was undermining their power. And so they began to persecute the church. And what we see in our text today is, is, is how they begin to handle that and, and how they dealt with that and, and yet remain faithful to God's conviction. And that's what the church did. They responded uh, to God's conviction and they, they stopped doing something. They stopped adhering to the authority of the religious leaders of their day. And that was hard. I think sometimes we read this and we know the rest of the story. We know how the story ends. So we think, oh yeah, of course they would stop listening to those guys and wouldn't obey them. That was difficult. That was not easy just to, just to kind of brush off the high priest and, and people who were telling them what they could and could not do. But they stopped under the conviction of God, under God's conviction. They stopped adhering to the authority of the voices they'd listened to all their lives and had listened to for, for centuries. And they started doing something. They, they started to tell the truth of who Jesus is. And they started to stand on that truth and live out the truth and join him in what he was doing. Again, conviction can often feel negative. And, and, and sometimes it is. When we're sinning, when we're going against God's will, it, it, it does hurt. And it requires a change. 
But there's also the positive uh, account of, of God's work in the world where we get to join him, where we get to be a part of it. And it's a positive because it brings God blessings, not only to those we serve, but to ourselves. Either way, God is at work. God is in control. God is doing something special in the world and in your life. And he's calling you to live under his conviction and to accomplish what he has for you. Our text today shows the specific ways that God's conviction works and what it is we do. And so these are four things uh, of ways that God always convicts his people. And the first one is this, God convicts his people to proclaim the truth. God convicts his people to proclaim the truth. Again, these religious leaders were upset and they told him to, to pipe down. Look at verse 28. They, there, was, there was no question about what they were being told to do. Verse 28, they were told not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And their main concern was not that the, that the teaching was going out, but how they were perceived by it. See, they, they didn't like what, what it said about them. Look at the last part of verse 28. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. See, here's what's happening. These people had power and authority and responsibility. And everyone knew that it was, it was they who, who caused the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so where there were once people who when they would see these leaders, they would be in awe of them. They would be afraid of them. Well, now all of a sudden they're giving them the stink eye. Now they're looking at them with disrespect. Now they're looking at them with disdain. And they're saying, you guys are the problem. You guys are the issue. You, you need to give your life to Jesus the way we have. And, and they didn't like it because they're looking at these apostles. Let's not forget, these guys were uneducated people. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors of all things. They're zealots. They're, it, here's what the religious leader, they're a bunch of losers. How are they telling us what's what? How are they exhibiting this power? And they didn't like it one bit. They didn't like the fact that they were having to deal with the issue that the one that they had put to death, it was in his name lives were being transformed. It was in his name that these no names were being so bold. And there's no doubt that, that they had evil motives. Look in verse 17, go back in, in chapter five, look in verse 17 of what was really in the heart of some of these folks. <laughs> And here's what you got to understand about a lot of people who are just hungry for power. They don't care about people. They, they, they don't care what happens to daily people and what happens in their daily lives. Look at verse 17. Here's what, here's what happens to most people. They're just filled with jealousy. A, a lot of leaders, they just want the power and the pleasure and the popularity and the possessions that go with the position. And when, that, when those things are taken out, they get really upset. They, they didn't care about the day-to-day -day lives of people. They didn't care that there was a guy who had been healed. They weren't excited about that. Why? Because it undermined their power. It undermined them. And that's, where, that's what you got to keep an eye on is the motives. Now, there were some who probably had good motives. And let's not forget, there, there were guys like Nicodemus who were in the Sanhedrin, who were sensitive to the Spirit, who had a sense that, that something special was going on. And, and even those who did not believe, there was still a sense of, of care and concern for, for the people. They, they knew that the Romans were watching. 
They knew that as a people who were divided, the, the Jewish people there in Jerusalem, knowing that, that there was a division, that the Romans would step in and seek to divide the people more, undermining the spiritual authority of those folks and hoping to crush them and remove their power source. There, there were others. And so they had these, these personal convictions about how they could best lead to the thriving of humanity. But that's not what we do. We, we don't lead and we don't live by personal subjective convictions we live and we lead by God's convictions and God's conviction always leads us to proclaim the truth and that's what the apostles did look in verse 29 when given that challenge but Peter and the apostles answered we must obey God rather than men 15 years prior to this day that was a nice sentiment. Going forward, I believe this is going to become a great mantra for the people of God in, in Western society. As we're going to be told to be quiet about our convictions. As we're going to be told to deny science as secularism tells us to, to. To not speak up about the things that we believe are true and right. And there's going to come for all of us in, in a workplace or in a personal relationship or at school, in some way in society, you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to decide, am I going to yield to the authority that is over me? Or will I say, as the apostles did with Peter, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles did not and could not back down. They were convicted to proclaim the truth. And if we're going to, we've got to stay focused on what this is all about. It's all about what God says is best for human thriving. It's not about our opinions. It's not about what our, our, our perceptions are and, and what our, our personal desires would be. It's what is true. What has God said? And, and, and knowing what we believe and why, it, it leads us to proclaim. And listen, it's easy to get angry about, about what we don't like in society. It's easy to complain about all the things that we say they are doing. God has not given us permission to do that. What he has called us to do is to simply be his people in this moment and stay focused on proclaiming the truth. That's what the apostles did. So must we. I appreciate what Malcolm Muggeridge says, and we need to hold on to this, friends. He said, as Christians, we know that here we have no continuing city, that crowns roll in the dust, and every earthly kingdom must sometimes flounder. Whereas we acknowledge a king men did not crown and cannot dethrone. And we as citizens of a city of God, they did not build and cannot destroy. Friends, do not be discouraged. Our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases and he will not be stopped. Can you give him praise? Please believe that. As the darkness is on the move, never underestimate the power of the light. As hate grows, never underestimate the truth of love. And remember, our God, our God is here. He's firm. He stands. And in that moment, Peter proclaimed these doctrinal truths. And that's what we must hold to. As, as our world decays and, and as there is regression in human understanding of ethics and sexuality and all the good things that God has provided. We must hold to the foundations of the very fundamentals. And that's what you see Peter doing here as he's talking to these, these leaders, beginning in verse 30 on through 32. There's three main doctrines I want to show you. 
Three fundamental doctrines that we must never dispose of, that we must hold to and stand firm on. The first is the doctrine of Christ. Look what he said in verse 30, uh, ver, uh, chapter 30, I'm sorry, verse 30, first part. It says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. What's he saying? He's saying, he's telling the gospel. Jesus is God, he lived a holy life. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He's gonna return one day. He's gonna make all things new. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's telling them to believe that Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of God and he will save all who believe. There's not only the doctrine of Christ, there's the doctrine of salvation. Look at the last part of verse 30. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Salvation comes first to the Jews and to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But we're all saved the same. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And we understand using three circles that the world is not as it should be. God created all things in harmony. There was perfect love. God's design was wonderful, but we destroyed it. Human beings having been made in the image of God, given the authority over his creation, we sinned and that sin always causes brokenness. We have a broken relationship with God at birth, a broken relationship with ourselves at birth, a broken relationships with other people. There's brokenness in our world because of sin. And there's more brokenness today because there's more sin. There's more sin that's being revealed, that's being spoken, that's being held to. There's good news and that's the gospel. If we will repent and believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a holy life, that he died an atoning death, that he has been raised and is returning again, we will be saved. And then we can pursue and recover God's design. This is the doctrine of salvation. We must hold to it. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Friends, the Holy Spirit has come just as the Old Testament and Jesus Christ our Lord said he would. Remember what was on the lips of our Lord in John 15, beginning in verse 26? But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Again, it's so easy to get caught up in the emotions of how we feel at any given moment. It's so easy to get caught up in the emotions of, of sadness as I am today, or maybe even apathy as, 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 as so easily happens when you live in a culture that's as, as decayed as our own. We just get used to the this, this, this sickness. We just get used to the language. We get used to the, to the sin and we become apathetic to it. Or, or we get mad. We just, wanna, we just wanna say things and it's hurtful things that we wanna say, not helpful. But friends, we are called not, not to share our opinion, but to proclaim the truth and understand they're not gonna always appreciate it. Look at, look at their response in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Friends, the world is going to mock us, even attack us for proclaiming the truth. We must do it anyway. The easy thing to do is say, well, they made their bed, let them sleep in it. That's their problem. I've believed, Lord God bless us four and no more unless they want to become like us four. That's not what Jesus did with me. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. While I was running from God, God pursued me. 
And having saved me, how can I do any, anything different than what he's done? How can any of us who have, have been loved by God, how can we not love others the way God has loved us? He did not love us because we were lovable. He loved us because he chose to. And friends, we must choose to love. Lying is not loving. And silence is agreement. Lying is not loving. Lying to people that, that are lying to themselves and then you being silent and silence is agreement, it's not loving. What is loving is to proclaim the truth. To lovingly proclaim the truth and then to deal, to deal with the results. A lesson here that's, that shows up here and, and the second thing I want you to note is, is through the words of this guy Gamaliel. And the second thing I would encourage you to write down and remember is that God convicts his people to reject the heretics. To reject the heretics. And so in verses 33 through 39, we're introduced to a man by the name of Gamaliel. This is a very interesting person. You need to know this person uh, because of his, his influence on our own faith. Um, in the council, you see them talking about the council. This is the Sanhedrin. These were the leaders of not only the religious, but the, the, the civic way of life there for the Jews in Jerusalem. And there were two parties. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees believed in angels and an afterlife and miracles and the power of God. The Sadducees did not. And so Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He believed in angels and miracles. And so to see these miracles, he was saying, yes, obviously this, this is something happening here. There's angels and demons. And so he, he, he's calling into question this reality. Now, the, the interesting thing about Gamaliel is he was one of the most powerful rabbis of his day. This is the one that every, everyone was buying his books. Everyone was listening to his podcast. Everyone knew this guy, Gamaliel. And what's really fascinating to me is that Gamaliel was the, was the tutor and teacher of the Apostle Paul. This is the man who trained the Apostle Paul. And so when, when Paul was saved on that road to Damascus and then he went into Arabia for uh, some 15 years, what he was having to do was to take all that Gamaliel had taught him about the old covenant and, and be able to explain to himself and to others the new covenant. So in a lot of ways, we have the book of Romans today because of the instruction of Gamaliel in the life of the apostle Paul. So this is an important guy to our faith. But notice what he's doing here. He's telling the guys to relax. What he's basically saying is we've seen heretics before and he names two. He names two in particular. You guys were, you'll remember these guys, uh, you know, verse 36, there was that, uh, you know, that Theodos guy, you know, and then, and, and then the other one, you know, that, that Judas guy, the guy, he's, he's pointing out heretics and he's saying, look, we, we saw what happened to them. They became nothing. Fact of the matter is these guys are nothing. They're from God, so be it. You can't stop God anyway, but we know they're not. So just avoid them, ignore them, send them away. Don't give them any more attention. They're heretics. And so that's what he convicts the Sanhedrin there to do. And he, he makes a good point for us. We need to be mindful that there are always heretics and there are always heresies. What is a heresy? This is from Alistair McGrath. Heresy is a form of Christian belief that more by accident than design, ultimately ends up subverting, destabilizing, or even destroying the core of Christianity. 
Heresies and heretics are dangerous because many of the times they have some, some sense of truth to them. There is some seemingly sense of truth. And so one of the things you'll see in our culture today is that people who, who, are, are, who want God to be well-spoken, they'll say, well, God is love. And we say, yes, he is love, but he's also holy and righteous. And, and there is, because of this holiness and righteousness, there is a wrath of God that, that must be dealt with because of sin. And, and no, 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 let's just talk about the love of God. And then there's another group, and they've been around for, for decades, the, these red letter folks. If, you know, the red letters, those are the letters that Jesus spoke. And so, you know, what really matters is what was what exactly Jesus said, the red letters. And you'll see them making progressive, I would call it regressive policies and, and practices based only on what the letters of Jesus said. Just real quick on this. Jesus is God. God wrote the Bible. Jesus wrote Leviticus, okay? So all of what God has said in his word applies. And we must hold to the whole counsel of God's word, the entire canon of scripture. Now, the thing that makes heresies different and difficult is because of what they, what they do. So uh, Daryl Dash, again, he wrote a wonderful article. I recommend you Google it and, and, and read it. He wrote, heresies typically attempt to resolve some of the tensions of the Christian faith by making them more compatible with ideas in wide circulation. Many heretics want to be helpful. And what the liberals said after World War II was, you know, they'll never accept this Christianity as, as is. We need to dumb, dumb down the gospel. We need to water this thing down so that more people will be accepting of it so that it will stick around. And in, in essence, what they did was destroy it. Here's what we do at Living Hope. We hold to the standard Orthodox faith that has been delivered to the saints for millennia. And what we have and what we use to guide us are our articles of faith. Friends, members of this church, you need to regularly review and read our articles of faith. As we get ready to go to uh, the ballot box, you need to read our articles of faith. You need to understand what we believe about when life begins and why. You need to read about what we believe about the value of human life, even those who are, are sick, especially those who cannot care for themselves. That, that their life, life matters because it's made in the image of God. You need to be mindful of the main things of the gospel. And, and friends, the scriptures are very clear about the main things. I, I love Alistair Begg. I can't, I can't say his name without using his asset. Alistair Begg. You need to know Alistair. You need to listen to him preach, not only because his accent is cool, but because he preaches the word. Here's what he says. The main things are the plain things presented in scripture. If someone's pulling out some obscure verse and telling you we finally found the, the real truth, you need to immediately think, probably a heretic. I need to do a whole stand-up on you might be a heretic if. Wouldn't that be good? It might cause more problems than pain. I don't know. But, but we just need to be mindful that the main things are plain in Scripture. Now, as it pertains to what are the main things, again, our articles of faith are the main things. And we're not going to argue and get caught up in the things that aren't the main things. You say, well, how do you know the main things? I, I read this a couple of week, weeks ago. Um, this book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. Highly recommend it to you. It, it, it's a simple read um, that basically outlines what are the main things and why. 
and it will help you tremendously in having conversations with people who want to delve into the, the mysteries of, of doubt and questions. Again, those things are, 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 are neat and, and, and fun in and of themselves, but they're not the main things. And, and friends, we got to be, be very careful that we, that we don't get caught up in unnecessary argumentative and hurtful conversations. Again, back to Daryl Dash, look what he wrote. Heresy exists and we must identify it and teach against it, but not every disagreement rises to the level of heresy. To preserve that notion of heresy and for the sake of our own integrity, be careful before you call someone who disagrees with you a heretic. If they disagree with the Bible, that's different. If they disagree with your opinion or your ideology, eh, what do we do? Here's the words of our Lord. Here's what Jesus said. And I believe we're gonna have to do this more and more. This is Matthew 10, 16. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise and be weary of the heretics and what they're gonna do, but be innocent in, in your own conscience and just simply live under the conviction of God. And, and, then, and then the third thing, and this is hard. This is hard. God convicts his people to accept the consequences. When we lovingly, and I mean that word lovingly, proclaim the truth and reject heretics, we will be attacked. And we will be said to be unloving, mean-spirited, narrow-minded dogmatists. There may be severe consequences as there were for the apostles. Look in verse 40. You might want to underline those three very, very hard words. They beat them. If you're going to proclaim the truth and if you're going to reject heresies, you might get fired. They may not do business with you. You may be canceled. Do it anyway. Do it because you stand with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do it because he is worthy. Do it because it's true, because it's right, because it's best. And know that you stand in the company of many. Not, not only in the times of scripture, not only in the early church, but even re recently, Calvin Concord has become a, a hero of mine. Some of you remember this story from just a couple of years ago. He was the fire chief there in Atlanta, had, had served so faithfully and so well, and he was fired. Why? Because he wrote a Bible study for the young people in his church about what it means to be a godly man. He wrote a Bible study curriculum. There was nothing ostentatious. There was nothing, uh, this, there was nothing un, unreasonable about any of it. But went against the new cultural norms. And friends, if we're going to proclaim the truth and reject the heretics, we have to accept the consequences. But let's do it the way the apostles did it. Look what it says in the Bible. Look what they did rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoice. I know that's hard. 
What do you mean when I get fired, I'm supposed to rejoice? What do you mean when they won't do business with me? Rejoice. What do you mean when they cancel me? Rejoice. Rejoice that you are counted in the company of Jesus Christ. And that you, you stand out. I remember when I was, I was saved and within a year I began to be trained in leadership. I knew I was called to pastoral ministry and one of my mentors made me memorize Philippians 1.29. I've memorized it in the NIV. This is the ESV, ESV I'm sorry. And so I'm just going to read it. I, I, my, my memorization's NIV and they're a bit different, but here's what it says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And in the midst of all that suffering and difficulty and disdain, what did they do? Last thing, God convicts his people to accomplish the mission. As all this is going on, and don't think it's easy, it was easy, and don't think it's going to be easy for us. But look at verse 42, and let's remember this. Don't ever forget this. Hold to this. Keep this in front of your faces. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one is Jesus. What Jesus has commanded us to do is not complicated, but it's not always easy. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are not called to, to, to make crowds. Doesn't matter how many show up. It matters that we who believe show up. We're not called to, to get people to sign a card or to enter their name into membership. We're called to make disciples that make disciples. And what we see in the early church are people that lived out the disciples' life. We use the disciples' cross. We spent all of August talking about this. Gathering for worship, connecting in groups, equipping for growth, serving the church and world, making disciples. This is our mission. And it happens as we live under God's conviction. Let me ask you. Are you regularly under conviction? When was the last time that you were pierced to the heart about an attitude or action in your life? Friends, I can assure you that your flesh is at work. And if you're not being convicted about the works of your flesh that are in contrary to the will of God, something is very wrong. You need to pray about that. What are you being convicted to do? Friends, there's, there's much to be done. Who, who is it that you're supposed to be having a conversation with this week? See, everyone thinks, you know, this big, you know, well, what's my, what's my one, three, five, ten? Forget that. Tomorrow. What are you supposed to do tomorrow? Who are you supposed to talk to tomorrow? Who are you supposed to love tomorrow? Is there no conviction about tomorrow? And, and, and a big question. If you were to live under God's conviction, what would have to go from your lifestyle? How would your financial budget have to change? How would your calendar have to change? How would your attitude and your tone and your mentality have to change? Friends, are you willing? Are you willing to live under God's conviction? It's not an easy life, but it's a blessed one. I want to encourage you as we sing to today to, to deal with those things. Let's stand together as we pray. Care leaders, come forward.
Father, again, we, we are amazed at your love for us and we are convicted by that. It's easy. Uh, Lord, what's not so easy is to deal with those who, who are enemies to the cross, who think that what will lead to human thriving is deception, destruction of biblical values and truth that always undergird any successful society. Lord, you, you've called us not, not, to, not to stand for social cause, but for the cause of Christ. And in so doing, bring about hope and love and peace that ultimately leads to the care and the welfare of our city and our state. Lord, help us. Help us to be your people that live by your conviction. And as we praise your name, help us right now to do business. Maybe to come pray, maybe come talk with a leader. But Lord, to be honest about where we are, to be awakened to the reality of the need. Help us, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.